Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode 336. Today in the show, Dan and I are talking about spring scouting, shed hunting, beginner deer gear, deer hunting politics, and a whole lot more. All right. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. I had a whole planned introduction uh, for the show, but it just has to go out the water because of what just happened. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I thought I was on my A game today, but, and uh, what I texted you today and I said, this is going to be the greatest podcast we've ever recorded. And it's like (laughs) one second into our phone call, it just all went out the window. Yeah, somehow Dan Dan calls me to start the podcast, and he calls, I don't know, me and like Andy five May. other people. Andy May. We got Andy May's voicemail, and then several other people answered the phone. Who yeah. who knows who they were, Dan? Uh, yeah. how, how'd you manage that one? I don't know. I just I looked at my computer, and I started hitting buttons, and <laughs> next thing you know, there's about five people on the line. <laughs> I guess that's your typical start to the day, huh? That's right. Oh, that's man. Right. I don't even have any kids in the room distracting me. They're uh, they're seeping into every little bit of your life, even your free time. Well, <laughs> I'm glad we figured it out. I'm glad we're here. Uh, glad we're getting to catch up, Dan, because it's been I know. It's been a little it's while. Been too long. Too long. Um, here's what I want to do. All right. I want to take some time here to catch up on the front end, as we like to do when we're able to get together. Uh, BS a little bit. Talk about some current events. Uh, I had a kid since we last chatted. There's been some... Number two. Number two. Number two is here. Uh, so we got to talk about that a little bit. Um, we, we also, though, before we dive into kids, we also have to talk about shed hunting a little bit. Uh, yep. We got to talk a little bit about a dirty deer hunting politics debacle going on in Michigan right now, Dan. I'm going to loop you in on that. Um, and then we got to answer a whole bunch of questions. We've got, I don't know how many, dozens and dozens, hundreds maybe of questions from listeners that uh, have been sent in here recently. So we're going to talk about spring scouting, stand setup ideas, uh, balancing hunting and family, scouting, shed hunting, uh, fart questions. I mean, <laughs> we've got a whole slew. All of them. <laughs> we got a whole slew All of things. Of them. So yeah, man, full slate of stuff to talk about. But um, But yes, number two is here. Uh, he's a little over two weeks old now, Yeah, healthy, happy. His name's Colton. And, uh, 
I'm I'm two thirds of the way to understanding your life, Dan. Two thirds. Yeah, dude. I tell you what, uh, I have a couple friends, and I'm not going to say any names. They probably know who they are, but every once in a while, they'll they they will catch themselves complaining about having one kid, mm-hmm. and I won't even have to say anything, and I'll just look at them. <laughs> And then they'll put their head down in shame because yeah. they know they only have one kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm getting to understand better and better every yeah. day. I just don't – what I don't understand is how people do it with more. Like how do people with four kids or five kids survive? You don't. You just one, – one of them always is getting ignored and that's the one that, uh, I don't know, stays inside and, and loves video games or something. <laughs> I don't like – I don't know. Uh I, it's hard to pay attention even with two adults to all three of our kids at the same time. Yeah. Someone's getting ignored. I've, I've already wondered just how is it going to work this, you know, this spring and summer and especially fall when I have to take off and yeah. Kylie's here on her own. Like just something simple is like, how do you do a bath time when you've got a two and a half year old that's crazy and then you've got an infant? Um, how do you do that? Right. I, I don't even know. Just simple things like that. We're trying to think through, okay, how do you make this work without one of, with, how do you do it? And both survive. That's <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you this right now. Uh, when it comes specifically to bath time, yeah, there might be a day or two that the kids don't get baths. Uh, as long yeah. as they're not covered in feces, I think <laughs> it is a it's a it's a win. If you if your kids are still breathing at the end of the day, it's a win. I think I think you just keyed on. I think you just touched on the key, which is shifting baselines. You've got to change right. your expectations. Right. The more Absolutely. kids you have, the lower standards you have for quality of life. Yeah. Ah, yes. But uh, healthy. But yeah. How's mom? Healthy. Everything good? Yep. Mom's doing good. She's uh, starting to feel like a regular person again a little bit, uh, which is nice. As you know, those last weeks of pregnancy are tough. Yep. Um, so she's feeling good and um, we're just figuring stuff out. We're just trying to kind of figure out what the new normal is. And um, I took a little bit of time sort of away from work. Wasn't doing as much at work and, and, hung out more during the day, helping out for the first couple of weeks. And now I'm back in the office full time this week. So now, now Kylie's trying to figure out what the full day on her own looks like. So we'll get a, we'll get a report card back at the end of the day. We'll see, we'll see how it went, but um, I think it's going okay. I haven't heard anything like the, the house is still standing. I haven't heard too much <laughs> screaming. Uh, Kylie hasn't called me crying yet. So I'd say so far so good. Wow, then then you're just into it, right? There's so much more time for you to fail as a father and a husband. <laughs> yeah, I've, you can speak from experience, right? <laughs> <laughs> every day, every day. Yeah, man. So uh, what about you? Anything big new in the world of Dan Johnson uh, since we talked about, I don't know, three, four weeks ago? Oh, man, you know, just, uh, you know, there's some crazy things that happened in my life. Uh, my my uh, social media got hacked. So do you and think this is because of all that Russian porn you watch? Russian porn? Yeah. I'm assuming that's how the hackers got your stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> you son of a bitch. Uh, I didn't know it was going to be this kind of podcast, yeah, Mark. That, that caught you off guard more than I expected. I know, it did. I think I might have to throw you under the bus later. <laughs> so anyways, continue. You got hacked. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I straight up got hacked, uh, and it was Islamic. Right. So I think that when they, when you say that, how do you, what do you mean? How do you know you're saying that that's where the attack came from? Well, that is what they posted. So I, I'm not, I don't know too much about Islam or whatever, but I do know from watching the news and, and just having exposure to, um, like the news and Islamic 
terrorism and stuff like that. It w- it looked like the black ISIS flag that they posted on my personal page. Oh, and wow. they must have tried to do it within Nine Finger Chronicles, named themselves admin of my Instagram pages. And basically, they made uh, several posts. And then they tried to boost those posts for like $3,600. Wow. Now, is that your money coming off your credit card or their credit card? Well, it all got shut down before the the boost was made. Thank God. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I had a week without social media and it scared the shit out of me yeah. uh, because, as you know, you, you know, try doing Wired to Hunt or Meat Eater without social media. Yeah, it's important. Yeah, very important. And uh, so I had I was just was worried about that. Um, that. That was all last week. Finally, uh, I made a comment on one of my podcasts about, uh, you know, on the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast about, hey, if there's anybody out there, I'm desperate. I could use some help. Some guy reached out to me and says, hey, man, I I know a guy. Uh, Let me see what I can do. I'm not promising anything. Two hours later, I got an email from Facebook saying, um, you need to verify yourself. You need to go through this, the this, all these steps took me about 30 minutes and, uh, changed my password, changed my email address, changed a whole bunch of different things and had to go in and delete the posts that they made, delete the admins. And, uh, finally late on Friday, I got access back to all my social media. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. Thank God for that, man. Yeah. I know you were stressing out about that pretty bad and, and understandably. So glad it, glad it came together. Although I gotta ask, was there a tiny bit of you that liked the fact that you didn't have your social media just because you didn't have to have that constant little tug to be looking at something or posting something or, or any of that. Do you know what I mean? Yep, absolutely. And you're 100% correct. I There was a part of me that was like, this sucks because, you know, and I'm a firm believer that if I didn't have the Nine Finger Chronicles and I didn't have um, any of what I have going on now, I probably wouldn't have Facebook or Instagram. Yeah. So I, I was, I was, it was just something cool. I didn't have to worry about it. It, I wasn't on my phone flipping through things and you know how you get into the Instagram black hole, you you go on to make a post about wired to hunt or sportsman's nation. And next thing you know, you're, you've been scrolling there for about 30 minutes and you've done nothing Mm -hmm. productive. Yeah, man, I'm I'm constantly trying to fight that. That is yeah. just so easy to waste time or to get sucked into something that makes you feeling crappy, like seeing yeah. crappy political news or stupid people oh, or something Jesus. that just yes. gets you all fired up. And all of a sudden you realize that you're all stressed out or upset or feeling cruddy for something that just you didn't have to have part of your life that day. But because yeah. you got sucked into the Internet, it is. Um, yeah. I'm trying to find ways to like, force myself out of that because it can just be a bleh, just yeah. just toxic. Yeah. And that's like all television is these days is just those really he said she said political ads uh-huh. one side blaming the other side and and it's just it's so gross that it even it even has affected my family because my daughter's like, "Well, I thought Donald Trump was our president. He's supposed to be like, why do people hate him?" I'm just like, "Oh, sweetheart." <laughs> you know, like and then the same thing was like, "Why is Donald Trump you know, do this, or why does the president do this? Or why is this guy not like Donald? You know, it's, and, uh, so then I have to explain all that crap and, uh, I just want to shut the TV off and watch cartoons. Good luck with that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. That's the one nice thing about not having cable 
is we never have to see cable news. That's one thing I don't have to be involved in at all. I see it online, yeah. but um, but at least I don't need to see the talking heads because that's sometimes half the the worst of it. So yeah, and the only time we really watch that is for local news in the morning to try mm-hmm. to get the weather right and uh, throw on the the local news and and still every it was real bad during the caucus part of time of Iowa. Oh yeah. Oh Jesus! I mean, it was fifteen commercials an hour of different people yeah, and so, that's a debacle for you guys yeah that's when you just stop paying attention mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so iowa caucus social Failure. media debacle um <laughs> a lot of bad stuff happening in iowa these days <laughs> yeah anything yeah. anything good happening in the uh, in the world of dan johnson over there have you been out shed hunting yet yeah i um i went out one day uh, and it was probably for about oh hour and 30 minutes took my brother i went to go drop my kids off at uh, my mom's so they so she could watch them that night and me and my brother and my sister-in-law we went out to uh do you remember that one day i found like 11 sheds in 45 minutes yep so we walked that no sheds however tons of sign so probably in about two or three Eh, two weeks, I'll probably go back there and walk it again uh, to see what I can find. But uh, no, no deer, but a ton of sign and a ton of corn still in the field nice. and not standing, but you know, it's been gone, it's gone through or missed through the combine. So I'm really looking forward to getting out and doing some scooping, man. So here's a question for you when you yeah. find a cornfield like that, where there's yeah. just so much sign and you know there's got to be deer in there. Um, and even especially when you start finding those sheds, like you did that one year in those buffer strips, do you ever devote yourself to checking the corn rows themselves? Yeah, I had this conversation with some other guys and I guess I don't have enough time to, because the buffer strips are a higher, you know, I feel like you're going to, they're easier to see that it's a higher success rate as opposed to walking every row in an 80 acre field. It would be. I, I would have to live closer to it in order to do that and, or spend an entire day doing it, which for me, it, it's just not feasible. Yeah. So here's my situation. Why I bring this up is because on, on the main, my main Michigan spot, um, there's about, I don't know what it is, maybe 20 acres, a 20 acre cornfield, maybe 15 to 20 acres. And yeah. it's just getting pounded. Tons and tons and tons of deer. Um, I saw the browless eight, which was a mature buck that I was that was that I was seeing the last month of the season. I saw him out there once missing a side, um, and then we haven't we haven't got to talk about it. But I did mention it um, in another episode when you weren't on. But you know, I found trans sheds. Yep, saw that. Yeah. So the match set was in the cornfield just by accident. I got just super lucky and and was walking with with the family, and we ran across the the match that right by the road but so yeah. i found those two antlers in the in the corn and then last weekend i took everett out for a walk and we found one side off the browless eight um maybe a hundred yards off the cornfield in a bedding area and then we found yeah. another two-year-old buck one of his sides maybe 60 70 yards off the cornfield in a little bedding area um oh, nice. so there's four antlers all within you know 100 yards of this cornfield and that's more antlers than I've ever found on this property ever before. Um, so there's a whole bunch of deer in this area hitting this cornfield. So I keep on thinking, like, 
is this the year I finally just walk every row because there's been so much activity. It's obviously the best food source around here. There's antlers already in and around it. Um, but it's such an investment of time, like you said, to do that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm contemplating doing it though. Cause I don't know if there's four antlers already right around there. That means there's at least four somewhere else. Um, yeah. if not more, probably are more cause I've seen other bucks that I haven't found any of their antlers yet. So it's very tempting, but it'd be a daunting thing to just walk every row staring at stocks. But I don't know. Maybe who knows? Maybe you'd find a whole bunch of sheds that way if you'd be willing to just do the the drudgery. Yeah. And I think if I could find one of those perfect days, I don't know about you, but I I seem to find more sheds on cloudy days when maybe there's uh it's a little mist in the air or something mm-hmm. like that because a the contrast of the shed is different than the grass and the surrounding, uh, you know, landscape. So it sticks out just a little bit more as opposed to walking a stubble cornfield looking for something that it looks exactly like a stubble cornfield in the bright sun yeah. with all the shadows and everything. So, you know what else I found? I, Cause I have started walking some of those rows already. And one of the things I noticed is I actually think that it helps when you're trying to see sheds in the corn, if there's a little bit of snow on the ground. Yeah. But most of the time you want to be snowless or close to snowless. At least like that's my preferred shed hunting conditions when you're back in the woods or looking at grass and stuff. But it seems like with the cornfield, it actually helps a little bit because you do have more contrast versus when everything looks like a shed. Um, at least with a little bit of snow, you'll see something sticking out that looks a little bit unique. And you've got the, like I'm looking at a cornfield right now and I can see with the snow, there's a nice snowy path down the middle. Um, that if there's a nice antler in there, you definitely see it, but you wouldn't have it blend in with everything like it normally would. So it's actually not a bad time if you've got an inch of snow out there or something like that. Yeah, that's my, that's, that's why I wanted to go a couple weeks ago or was it this last week? Because it was the perfect conditions, right? If they, we had had snow on the ground for about a week, a week and a half. And if something was going to fall, it would, it was going to be right on top of the snow. Yeah. So uh, that's why I wanted to get out and well, I think I got out there a little too early. Speaking of shed hunting, something yes. that, um, that came to mind to me, someone, some, someone on Instagram or somewhere had messaged me with this idea and I thought, man, that's a really good idea. And then I also remembered you did something like this. I don't remember if it was during shed season, but at some point you were going out with your kids to scout or shed hunt or something. And you guys were collecting trash too. And yeah. I thought we should do like a shed hunting challenge to everybody listening. If you're going to go out shed hunting this year, bring along a plastic bag with you, bring along some kind of bag and collect trash. And I don't know, I don't, I I haven't really fully thought this out, Dan, but what do you think about having some kind of shed hunting hashtag or something related to trash? And then we give some kind of prize away to whoever has like the most trash collected in one Mm -hmm. of their pictures. Some, some kind of idea like that. I mean, we should have something good coming, coming out of all of us walking around looking for antlers, you know? Right. Um, I like the idea. I like the idea. We have to kind of think it through a little bit, but what would be a catchy shed hunting related trash hashtag that we could use to track this um so you, you know when we talk about a buck that has a non-typical point and yeah, like we call it trash yeah so ooh, i'm thinking out loud here and help me out trashy sheds trash trash tra- shed. shed trash garbage uh uh <laughs> <laughs> people people now get to see what idiots we are in real time <laughs> 
Um, uh, I don't know. We'll yeah. we'll figure it out. Um, sheds with uh, scooping for scooping for trash. Uh, sheds and trash. Shed, just sheds and trash. Trash, trash and sheds. Um, uh, yeah, we'll have to think. About it. <laughs> <laughs> I I really should have came with this better prepared. By the well, end, by the end of I this episode, what, we should try to figure it out. Let's not even finish the Q and A part of this or BS <laughs> session. Let's just talk out loud about what we think we should be doing, <laughs> calling it for the next hour and a half. I think a lot of people would love that. Right? That's that's <laughs> riveting listening. <laughs> Right. Uh, by the end of this whole thing, we have to have some kind of idea because I want to try to give folks an incentive to pick up some crap out there while you're out walking for antlers. I think it's such a simple thing that that I should be doing a better job of that all of us could probably do a little bit better job of. Um, so I'm thinking, what could I give away? Um, I'll figure out something cool. I'll, I'll give away a copy of my book to someone. I've got some extra still of that. And I bet you I've got... Oh, well, we'll get back. We'll get back on all these things. Dan. Uh, shed hunting trash challenge. We will do something along those lines and we will announce it at some point here as soon as we figured it out. Um, cool. 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 I got one other piece of current events that I got to yes. just vent to you about. Okay. All right. And I got one more thing to say before, after that, and then we can go. Good news or bad news? It's good. Okay. I think it's good news. Yes. Okay. I think I know what it is. Then let's save the good news for the end. Okay, so my bad news story of deer hunting politics gone bad. Oh, geez. Yeah, I know. So I have to just talk about what's going on here in Michigan and share my frustration and explain what's what's happening and, and where we're at and maybe encourage my Michigan listeners to do a little something. Um, here's a situation. Here in Michigan, we have something called the Natural Resources Commission. And this is a, I believe, seven-member commission that is appointed by the governor to take recommendations from our DNR and essentially confirm the regulations for hunting and fishing in Michigan, okay? And they have frequent meetings, I think monthly NRC meetings, where they talk through different proposals and the things they're looking at and the public can come and comment on it and there's all sorts of different things going on but it's a way to make the the process public it's a way to take in public feedback and it's a way for these commissioners to look at all sides of the issue as well as the science and everything to make the decisions about you know are we going to ban baiting or not are we going to change the season dates or not etc etc so the people that get assigned to this commission are really important they have you know significant influence on hunting here in michigan And over the years, all sorts of different people have been assigned to the commission. But just recently, our governor, back in December, I think, appointed someone named Anna Mitterling. I don't know if you remember this, Dan, but we had Anna on the podcast like four years ago. Okay. Um, Does the name ring a bell at all? No, it doesn't. Okay. Well, Anna Mitterling's from Michigan, and she was... Uh, a co-op coordinator here in Michigan. So she had a job for a while. She came out of school with uh, a degree in fisheries and wildlife and science and ecology and, and all sorts of things like that. So she came with this background. She then took a job working with the QDMA and Pheasants Forever and MUCC, which is a Michigan conservation organization and, and a whole bunch of different partner organizations here to help manage co- wildlife cooperatives and to help 
work with various stakeholders to conserve wildlife, to hunt, to improve the land, and to find ways to um, work together to improve hunter satisfaction, do all this really good stuff. So she helped coordinate these things, worked with hunters, and mostly hunters, all across the state doing this. And that's what she came on the podcast to talk about, is what she was learning, what she was doing, um, the studies they were doing. Really, really good stuff. So she did that. She came out with a fisheries and wildlife degree. She then is now a uh, professor of, I think it's environmental science, biology, something on those lines at a school here in Michigan. She is a hunter. She is very involved in volunteer work related to conservation, volunteering at deer check stations. She's working, uh, she's worked with CWD check stations. So she's on top of all these issues that impact hunters. She gets assigned or she gets nominated to the commission and I'm thinking, wow, this is a great person. This is actually someone who lives this stuff, who has an educational background in this stuff, who has worked professionally within this world and has worked with all the different stakeholders. Not only does she do this personally, but she actually has had to be in a position that has forced her to listen to all sides of the deer hunting issues, to actively work to bring people together. I don't know any better person or better type of experience to have when you're going to be taking a leadership role with managing our regulations, right? A big part of that is listening to all these different people, looking at right. the science, looking at the different perspectives and trying to come to some kind of consensus. So, Fact. yes, Anna gets assigned to the commission. It's great news. One of the best um, folks I've seen as far as a resume assigned to the commission. And interestingly enough, as far as everything I've seen, she's the only person to have been nominated for the commission to have an educational background in this stuff, to have a wildlife management degree. So she's probably the most qualified in that. But several days ago, I think it was Thursday, out of nowhere, all of a sudden find out that one side of the political aisle has decided that they are going to have a vote to disapprove her and remove her from the commission. The Senate has, as I understand it, I might get the details wrong. I'm, I'm not living and breathing this every second of the day. But as I understand it, there's a 60-day window where the Senate can approve or disapprove of a nomination to the NRC. On the last day before that 60-day window closes, they out of nowhere decide to have this new vote to remove her at the end and ends up the day it comes out. I, I got a text from Josh in the morning and said, hey, man, this thing is happening. It seems like some weird political stuff going on, and they're trying to vote Anna off the NRC. Make sure to call your senator. Make sure to spread the word, talk about it. So all of our buddies get together. We send emails. But that afternoon, the Senate majority, which is Republican here in Michigan, votes on a party line to disapprove Anna Mitterling off the NRC. So someone who is incredibly qualified just got knocked off the Natural Resource Commission here in Michigan. Why did that happen? I still don't have a clear answer, but... Here's what we are being told. We are being told, at least the, the, the story, is that there has been another nominee to the commission from our governor, who's a Democrat, and the Senate's not happy about that one. So as the story goes, this is hearsay. I can't vouch for this. This is just hearsay. What they're saying is that the Senate went and said to the governor, hey, if you get rid of this first guy, George Hartwell, We'll let you keep Anna. But if you don't, we're going to vote Anna off before our 60-day window comes out. And she said she wasn't going to compromise on it. She wasn't going to remove George. And so they voted Anna out. So someone who's incredibly qualified just got knocked off the NRC because of another person they didn't like. So 
Very frustrating. All the hunting organizations I know about within Michigan are up in arms. All the members I'm seeing online are, are sending emails, making phone calls. I placed a phone call to my senator. Um, I will give him credit. He he voted to disprove or to, to remove Anna. So I'm not happy about that at all. But to his credit, he did get back in touch with me and is willing to talk to me about it. I gave him a call today. He hasn't returned my voicemail. Um, but I'm hoping to hear from him directly to to see if there's something else to this. Um, but it's very frustrating. It is very disconcerting to see some political bullshit taking someone who's very qualified, who's a great representative of hunters and anglers, taking them off of this commission. Um, I'm, 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 I was very fired up about it, very upset. You should um, be. You should be. And so should everybody else, not only throughout the nation, but throughout uh, Michigan. This is exactly what hurts everything in life. It's. Do you think the people who voted to have so and so removed uh, was thinking about our natural resource? No. no, they were not. They were. It was all political, and it was all based off bullshit or somebody else's gain. It, well, the thing is, is that it's a party line vote. So when you see that everyone on one side of the aisle voted one way, and everyone uh, on the other end aisle voted otherwise. That screams partisan to me. There was one. Mm-hmm. There was one Republican, and I'm not trying to paint the Republican Party all in one way. I'm just saying this one instance. There was one. There was one Republican who did not vote with the party and said, "Hey, Anna is obviously qualified. I can't, with good conscience, vote against her." So I appreciate that person, but everybody else, I just can't understand it. The comments from my senator, and he's the Senate Majority Leader. Um, and again, not saying he's a bad person. Not saying maybe he's got some good reason for it, but his comment that I saw to the media was that he didn't think that she, uh, based on her testimony, because she had to go up to the, in front of the Senate panel and answer a bunch of questions when she was first appointed, um, claimed that she didn't seem to be able to make the big decisions or something like that. And so I actually went and I listened to the whole hour and 10 minutes of her being up there in front of the panel, answering questions and whatnot. And, um, and there just, there just wasn't any substance to that criticism was she you know the the most unbelievably strong and eloquent public speaker uh, and did she answer every single question perfectly 100% in, with, with full knowledge of each issue no but what she did do is when there was something that she didn't know everything about she said you know what I can't speak to that right now but what I would do is I would go look at the science I would go look at the social science. We'd talk to all stakeholders and come to a consensus. We'd come to a decision. I'm not going to jump to assumptions or I'm not going to pretend to know something. I'm not going to come to this with a, with a preformed opinion, um, which, which I thought was perfect. I thought that, that that's what we need from someone on this commission, not someone who's going to come to this with these ideological, uh, I don't know. I'm getting frustrated just even talking about this right now. Dude. But man. I feel you. Dude, I, I feel you. I've done the same thing in in Iowa where I've reached out to uh, senators, House representatives and talked to them about public land. And of course, Iowa is very low, uh, has very low public lands. Uh, it's an agriculture state. We have, you know, th- hundreds of thousands of landowners and uh, it's all ag based. And so public land kind of takes a back seat in our state. Uh, and when you voice your opinion about that in this state, especially to um, the the politicians, they could care less because it doesn't involve who is um, supporting them and who's supporting them are people in the agriculture industry. Right. So, 
I feel you, dude. I yeah, feel man. You. I think coming out of it, 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 it just reminds me of how important it is for us to speak up on these things. Cause if we don't yeah. speak up at all, then this stuff will just keep happening. Maybe if more of us knew about this ahead of time, like it didn't, what sucks is that this thing came out like the night before. And then the next morning they did the vote right away. So people didn't have a chance to, to reach out to the representatives. There was like two hours in the morning before you could even try to get your opinion known. Um, so we need to try to make our voices heard when we can. And I will say again, to my senator's credit, he did respond to my message, he texted me actually, and said he'd be willing to chat. So I appreciate that, um, but I do think that we all could uh, could continue to try to push the envelope and make sure that our senators and representatives know that we are a constituency that matters and that we care about these resources and these opportunities and the privilege to hunt and to have well-managed resources and and. And if we don't stand up and, and stick up for it, nobody else will, I guess is the big point. And in this case, not enough people stuck up soon enough. And it led to someone who's incredibly well qualified to help guide the regulations of hunting and fishing in Michigan. She got knocked off. And now instead, there's a couple lawyers uh, and a few other people who I'm not sure about their credentials in any kind of way can stack up to Anna. So very disappointing. Uh, yeah. If you're in Michigan, send, send your, take a look and see how your senator voted. And send them an email. Give them a call. If you are similarly frustrated as I am, let them know about it. I don't know if there's anything that can be done about it now. Um, but if nothing else, we need to make sure that they know we're listening and paying attention. So that's my political rant for today. Yep. There you go. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today 
or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. But hold on one second here before we move on. Uh, this is future Mark. I want to jump in here uh, the day after we record this conversation with Dan and just share a couple more final thoughts. Number one, I want to make it really clear here that there's blame to be placed on both sides. The more I've looked into it, the more it does appear that there is some kind of politicization of this crap coming from the Democratic side, the Democratic side as well. That might have been in part what pushed the Republicans to do what they did. So the moral of the story here is that there were some knuckleheaded moves on both sides of the aisle, mostly related to political baloney that's unrelated to Anna, that's unrelated to our wildlife resources. And that political crap from both sides of the aisle led to a bad outcome for hunters, anglers, and our natural resources. So this politicization of our wildlife management is a big issue, and it's something that's not just happening here in Michigan. It's happening all across the country. So we need to be watching out for it, and we need to be speaking up against it. Which brings me to point number two, which is the fact that today I did get to chat with my state senator, and I want to give him credit for that, that he respectfully listened to my feedback, affirmed that it wasn't falling on deaf ears and and promised that he'd take this into account moving forward into the future. And so for that, I am appreciative. And I think what I came away from all of this with is that we do still have a voice. We do still have the ability to make a difference, especially here on the local level with your state reps, your state senators. We do have a disproportionate opportunity to get in contact with these people and actually talk to them. You know, we can't talk to a president. We probably maybe can't even talk to a senator, a national senator, United States senator, excuse me, but our state senators, they're a lot more available. So give these people a call, talk to them, let them know that we care about these things. And I do think that if enough of us have the kind of conversations that I was fortunate enough to have today, I think we can make a difference. So that's all I got on that. Let's flip it back to past Mark and my conversation with Dan. (laughs) Now tell me some good news, Dan. Well, let's see. Uh, It was about a month ago. I got a call from Jared uh, from 2% for Conservation. and Jared Frazier. Jared Frazier, yep. And he says to me, Dan, uh, are you a busy man? I said, yes, I'm very busy. And he said, well, do you have enough time for conservation? I said, I always have time for conservation. And he said, do you mind if we put your name in the hat to become a board member of 2% for Conservation? And I said, absolutely. I would will, I, you know, I would love to, cause I, I tell you what, I, I made a commitment in 2020 before this even all happened that I was going to try to give back a little bit more than previous years, find a way to do something more to give back to any conservation effort that I possibly could, um, helping out, volunteering, you know, potentially donating more money. I'm already a 2% for conservation, um, business certified member through the sportsman's nation, a sportsman's nation certified. And, uh, I got a call last week or it's actually the week before from, uh, Jared saying, Hey dude, um, you made the cut and we would like you to offer you uh, a board of director seat within 2% for conservation. And I accepted it. So that's awesome. Yeah. So I am on as of today, today is Monday. They made the announcement just, uh, like literally as we're speaking, I, I, hit my phone and a message popped up. So, um, I'm on the 2% for conservation board of directors, and this is my way 
of giving back to conservation in any way I possibly can. Oh man, congratulations. That is, yeah. uh, that's great, man. I think you're spot on that, you know, it, I think all of us should look at 2020 and each new year yeah. to try to figure out what can we do more. Um, yeah. so what does that mean? Uh, what are you going to be doing? You're going to be on meetings, talking about the direction of the organization and that kind yep. of stuff, right? Yep. And I think specifically, um, I might, you know, just because of my expertise in podcasting, there is a potential that, uh, and, and I don't want to, you know, this is only 30 minutes really into my task right now as we speak or, you know, as my role as board of director. So I don't want to, uh, step outside of any lines. But what if you get fired 30 minutes in? <laughs> <laughs> what if you yeah, say something and they're like, oh, messed yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know you uh, did that, but uh, well, they, they heard Russian porn already. So <laughs> I'm sure that might be, Hey, Hey Mark, congrats. Hey, thanks a lot, buddy. I just got axed out of 2% for conservation. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> No, but I think, um, you know, the direction of helping assist them in the direction of their message, uh, who their message is going to, um, basically using my platform as a sounding board for 2% for conservation method or for their message. And, um, basically just refining that to reach as many people as humanly possible and attain as many members as humanly possible. So, um, and, and, you know, there's the good word and it just needs to be spread. And I think, uh, uh, you know, there's a probably start a podcast, maybe. I don't know. We'll see. Sweet, man. That's awesome. Well, good for you. Good for 2% for conservation to have someone like you on their team. And uh, I just can't cry in front every now, – now I'm a representative. I can't cry in public. <laughs> yeah, I know. You got to get your shit together, man. <laughs> uh, well, good, man. Keep us posted yeah. and definitely let uh, myself and the Wired Hunt world know when you need our support. Absolutely. You will be on my uh, press release list. Hit me up. Hit me up. Um, okay. So we've talked about kids. We've talked about good news. We've talked about bad news. Should we answer questions? Should we finally get to the main event? Let's talk hunting, Mark. All right. Let's talk hunting. I have, I don't know where you're at on this, but the last, as we do every year, we kind of go through, at least I do, and I think you do to a degree, kind of go up and down a little bit with the various seasons and, and what we're interested in or what we're obsessing over. Um, I'll get into a mode where I'm out west, I'm really into fly fishing, and then I get back and I'm really pumped about wanting to go on elk hunt, and then September arrives, I'm like, oh my gosh, I just want to be prepping for whitetails. I have all these different, you know... Yeah. Ups and downs there. My deer hunting excitement button just got pushed really hard like a week and a half ago. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think maybe just because like I'm starting to get serious about shed hunting, but all of a sudden I started thinking, man, I got to get really serious about planning some of the projects on the back 40 and where am I going to go hunting this year? And I've got all my magazines out and my books out and I'm working on my deer hunting to-do list and stacking up 10,000 things I got to get done in the next six months. And, and I'm fully, I'm fully amped and it's only February, Dan. So yeah, dude, dude, I, my daughter came up to me and said, dad, can we watch a hunting video? So before I came up and recorded this episode with you, we're sitting in the recliner. She hops on my lap and we were watching, um, high country mule deer hunts. And she was, oh, dude, this guy, he put on a shot and it went over this, it went over this buck's back. And she was, she was like, oh, no, man, he, <laughs> she missed, he, he missed him. He, she, she's like, you can't do that. He's standing <laughs> right there. You got to shoot him. Like, so she's, she's heard me talk too much about deer hunting. 
I was going to say, though, you haven't told her, you know, to be a little bit more understanding of those poor hunters when they miss the deer. Well, you know, daddy sometimes does that, honey. You got to yeah, give him a, yeah. a break. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, you, you can't have her watching that Western stuff, though. You got to start her on something good and wholesome, like the back 40. That's what oh, she should be watching. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, Ava. He's going to talk about pollinators for 30 minutes. I need you to pay close attention, please. Hey, hey, it's like four minutes, man. She can have a four-minute time span. <laughs> okay. Uh, deer, hunting. deer hunting. Deer hunting questions. Uh, we got a question. We got a ton of questions. So I'm just going to kind of go through these and pick random ones off this list I've kind of put together, and we'll see where it takes us. Um, this kind of relates to our excitement level. We got a question from Jack who just simply said, are you more excited for shed season or turkey season? Why? Uh, I mean, turkey season because I get to go do it with my family, and this year will be the first year that I think I'm going to be taking Ava out. Ooh. But you know how I am about shed hunting, dude. Love our sheds. Yeah, you know it. I know how passionate about and fired up you get, so – I love my daughter, but I might lean towards shed hunting. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy to say um, because shed hunting isn't really hunting. And that's the weird thing. But for some reason, damn it, I do get so yes. excited. I just love being out there hiking, looking, the anticipation, that burst of excitement when you finally see one. Unexpected. And yeah. I don't know. I, 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 and maybe because it stretches for so long for for us, while like turkey hunting, you could be done in one day. You could I mean, at least I know some guys or girls go all over the country and turkey hunt for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I guess in that case, um, but for me, usually it's a one state thing. So I'm probably going to vote for for sheds too. But our buddy Ross Hossman, I hate that dude. <laughs> I know. I hate him. I hate his guts. I know. And I hope he hears me say that because I <laughs> and I've even messaged him and told him how much I hate him. <laughs> Posting those damn pictures of his dog. Oh, dude. Big sheds, too. Not just little ones, but big sheds. Yeah, you already found a 70-incher. Jesus. Yeah. I think he's at, I think he said 15, I think is what he's at so far. Um, And he has only been out a few days. So, yeah, yeah, he stacks them up. But what can you do? Um, Okay. So, that's where we're at with sheds versus turkeys. Um. Kyle asks, what age do you plan to take your kids hunting for the first time? You just kind of answered that. How old's Ava? Uh, she's going to be turning seven in next week. And is that, that's going to be the, her very first hunt, right? This will be her very first turkey hunt. She's, she stepped into the woods with me before while I uh, did you know some turkey calls. She's been mushroom hunting. She's been shed hunting. But she has not been officially hunting where I'll be carrying a gun. Yeah. So – this is going to be, you know, this is going to be interesting. Do you feel like there, do you have any anxiety about how she's going to feel about the, the shooting and the killing of a bird? Is that something that you feel she's ready for or is it kind of unknown? Yeah. So that's, and that's a really good question because she is a very emotional, she's very sensitive. She loves, I can already tell you, she loves nature's butterflies, birds. Um, the last year, when Sarah shot her turkey, we brought it home and she was playing with its feet and playing with the fan and, and the beard. And she's like, daddy, why did, you know, like, why did mommy kill this? And I, you know, you got to explain to her, well, uh, we, we kill this bird, not only for fun because it's fun to go hunting, but we, then we eat its meat 
and then we can make you know food out of it for you and the family. Okay, well, I don't like it when an animal dies, and uh, well, I was like you know I don't either, and and you know you try to explain in the most sensitive way you possibly can to you know not necess- not rubber the wrong way to the point where she's just like oh hunting's gross I don't ever want to do it, but throughout all of this 2019 year leading up to today when you know when I said she we were she was basically cheering on the guy in the you know and then and then trashing him for missing yeah. the shot <laughs> you know so um I think she's to the and you know she saw the blood she sees the deer go down she see, sees them cape it out and so I think exposure secondhand exposure like watching through videos is great that way it's not real life right off the bat. Yeah. You know what I mean? And she's seen dead deer hanging from a rafter. She's seen the meat after we've cut it out, um, but she's never actually seen a kill other than on TV. So I think, I think that is going to help to the point where we're starting off with an ugly animal, like a Turkey that doesn't look cute. And I I think that's going to be a great introduction for her to, I don't don't know, to hunt. And and like the whole audio experience with turkeys yeah. just is so like oh yeah exciting even before you see anything that I feel like that's just such a good one for people to start with yeah <sighs> I can't wait I mean I've I've gotten I remember I told you about the turkey hunt I took Everett on last spring right when he yeah. was like I don't know just over a year um, I mean I, I don't know if you can really call it a hunt because we didn't have a gun but I took him out there and we called in a turkey the forty yards on the ground that was pretty sweet so I'm gonna I'm going to keep on doing that kind of thing with him. Um, Just kind of take him out. I think this is the first year I'm going to try to take him out during deer season. Um, I've got a box blind that you can sit up in and it's really comfortable. It's, it's super luxury hunting, um, which is good. I think for a kid. So he'll be almost three. I think, you know, December late season, take him out at the very end of the night, try to slip in there for the last half hour, 45 minutes and just see if a bunch of deer can come out. Um, I think he'd get a kick out of that because he's already, through the same things that you're talking about just by having like we watch hunting shows he sees all my deer when i bring him home we i kind of take him out and do all sorts we go shed hunting together already he's right with me in shed hunting we look at deer tracks we point out deer beds we're he's really into deer rubs right now and yeah. so now he goes around the house trying to rub on couches and stuff with his fake antlers <laughs> and uh two days yesterday or two days ago we went out and I, we saw a bunch of rubs and i don't know a week before i was teaching him what rubs were and so he was going and pointing at him but this time he got so excited when he saw him he was running up to rub trees and hugging them <laughs> and saying dear ra dear ra <laughs> so that's uh that's pretty cool but i don't know i think that probably i don't know somewhere in that like five six seven year old range is probably when i would actually take a gun because i do think that like that just the sound even is one of the big questions like will that scare the crap out of him i guess you have to kind of yeah. practice that ahead of time too yeah and um, i'm gonna have to get some kind of ear covers for her you know like yeah. maybe some of those um oh man what's the what's the brand that you can throw over your head but you can hear but that walker's game ear yeah but you when they pull the trigger it cancels out the 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 big bang yeah i think that's i think that's what it is i've never used them neither have i i'll have to look into that um it's gonna be fun though man i think that's yeah. gonna be the coolest i can already see just the things i'm doing to this point it's yeah. so much fun to see him get excited about these things that I I can see how that's so fulfilling. And I'll tell you, I used to think I I used to have this this preconceived notion of 
me going out and hunting with my sons. Just, you know, it's just, I, I, it's not like I didn't want to hunt with my daughter. I just, you know, you have this, I'm a man and I have a son and I'm going to go out and I'm going to have these hunting adventures with him. But what I'm finding out is my daughter, it seems to be more excited about hunting than right now my son does. And I know there, there's, there's two years difference there, two and a half years difference, but right now my son is showing more interest in other things than hunting than my daughter is. So I think, uh, it might be one of these daddy, uh, dad or daddy daughter hunting type clubs. That's so awesome. yeah, uh, there's, there's room for everybody, but right now my daughter is showing the most, uh, the most excitement. Very cool. For some reason, if I had to guess what Mac is into, my first guesses were monster trucks and mud wrestling. That's uh, not, that's just where my mind went. <laughs> it's, it's racing, racing. Like racing. what kind of racing? Like NASCAR? Well, he likes watching, uh, he likes playing Mario Kart on the Wii. But then the other day he sat down and watched these uh, truck races with my father-in-law. So he's kind of into racing, car racing right now. Well, there you go. Might have the next Jeff Gordon. Yeah, there you go. Um, all right, Paul, this is a good question. This is something that um, that I sometimes think about. Paul asks, do you treat standing corn as a bedding area or a food source when you're thinking of how you approach your stands or wind direction and stuff like that? Mm, that's a great question. I yeah. want you to start it off. <laughs> Honestly, I tend to look at it more of as a um, as like an open area, I guess, even though it's not, even though it's full cover, I, I, you have to blow your wind somewhere. And I know that right. deer do bed in cornfields. Um, I do know that deer absolutely feed into cornfields, but I probably look at it more as an evening food source than a bedding year. I, I'm, I'm making assumptions here, but my guess is that more deer feed in the cornfields around me than bed in them because there's a lot yeah. of good quality bedding around. Um, so if I had to lean one way, I would go that route. Um, at the same time though, I will look at standing corn as like a way to enter an area when you have to get into a spot where you can't walk through the timber and yep. you want to, you know, access it, accessing through a standing cornfield is not a bad way to do it. And so maybe even though there, there are some deer bedded in there, it's probably fewer. And because of how thick it is and because of just the, the density, I think you can get away with a little bit more. You can walk down a single row and there might be a bunch of deer bedded a hundred yards away but you could get away with it. While if you were walking through the forest, a hundred yards from bed to deer, you would likely blow them out. That's kind of how I would lean. Yeah. What do you yeah. think? It's tough. Um, I've never, uh, I read this article several years ago uh, in uh, North American whitetail. And there was this guy who killed all these monsters just through spot and stock in cornfields. Right, that was his go-to strategy: was spot and stalking giant bucks in cornfields. Um, but for me, I look at standing corn as in two different ways: early season, and that includes rut, and then the late season. So late season, obviously, it's a food source. Early season rut, 
I look at it as a problem because it's just a whole big area of cover that it, that I can't access. I can't set up in, I have a hard time knowing are the deer in there. Uh, this year was a perfect example of that. So, uh, to piggyback off what you said, other than an access route, like walking through a standing cornfield to backdoor, um, uh, a draw leading up to it or having good cover going into a tree stand. I, I kind of don't like standing corn throughout the season other than if it makes it all the way through the season into that late season timeframe. Yeah. So you're, you're basically saying that you would rather have your wind blowing over a standing cornfield than into some timber. Yeah. See, but then that goes again, goes back into my hunting strategy overall of not hunting a lot of field edges. Now you can't really count that as a field edge. Well, I guess, I guess let me take that back. I personally would not count the edge of a standing cornfield as a field edge when the corn is standing. Cause that's yeah. basically a jungle. You're in the middle of cover then. Right. But I still feel that like for me, it, I still kind of look at it as uh, I guess as a, as a field edge because it's a huge, or I guess we could just say edge in general, because it's a huge transition in vegetation, especially if it goes from open timber to standing corn. But if there is this, this real thick, you know, how sometimes we have a, from a field edge, 10, 15, 20 yards inside the timber, it's thick because the sun hits it. Then I don't think the stand, the, the quote unquote field edge is near as good. And they work the inside of the timber on that thick edge. Um, this, that's kind of my experience, but I just, I, I guess I haven't seen the, um, I haven't seen in the past where it's worked either way. So that's why I'm in the timber yeah, or in more cover. You know, another thing that just came to my mind, uh, as you were talking about how you think about standing corn differently throughout the year is that yeah. it is important to think about how deer use corn differently throughout the right. year. So right. in the summer and early season, they're not really feeding on that corn too much. It's not until later in the year that the corn becomes like very, very attractive. So yeah. if you've got a season open in September, even early October, that's probably not a top food source. So it really is just a, a bedding area or a transition area. Um, at that point, you don't need to think about much feeding going on at all because it's probably better things. But once you get into late October, obviously, then November and December, once it gets colder and that corn's really dried down, then it becomes a, a major food source. So yeah. that's another thing to think about as well. I wouldn't, yeah. when I, if I'm coming out in the evening and I've got a standing cornfield, I would not want to be walking through a standing cornfield after dark in the evening because that thing is probably full of deer. So yeah. again, in, in November, it de- in December. Yeah. It depends on, on what other food sources are in the area. If you have a lot of green, uh, foliage on the ground, then I, I would be less, um, I would be more apt or you had a good acorn crop. I'd be more apt to walking through the cornfield on the way back to the truck, as opposed to, um, uh, finding a different way. And it, a lot of it, I mean, there's so many very vari- variables that, you know, and each scenario is different, right? If you have one of those places where deer just pile out of the timber because I don't know, they don't have, that's, that's the only food source in the area. I don't, I don't have that. There's so much other food in the area that they don't necessarily need to eat the corn. Interesting. Yeah. Well, like you said, a lot of different factors to play. Yeah. Um, 
How about this question from Alex? What do you look for when scouting at this time of year? So it's February, March timeframe. We're looking forward to the next hunting season that's months away. Is there anything you can be looking at right now that will help you scout for next fall? Where's your head at? My head is terrain, period. I I really love this time of year getting out, especially with with snow on the ground. And this is more of a Midwestern type strategy, but you can still go out and do this in a southern state with no terrain, uh, like no snow on the ground. Look for subtleties in terrain. Look for low spots. Look for um, right now a big thing that I'm looking for on Onyx and um, when I do my sc- my scouting is these things I, I call spur ridges where it's just a ter- it's a terrain feature coming off of a main ridge that leads down into the drainage or um, a- another slight depression in a ridge where that deer use just so they're taking the lowest spot up into whatever it is they're trying to access um, little dips or you know and and then and then scout look for sign around those areas and then the only other thing left to do really is is hunt those areas in the se- during the season to see if in fact that terrain feature is worth hunting mark it off your list and move on yeah and i think i think your focus on terrain is is a good one at this time of year cuz that's something that's the same no matter what time of year it is right the terrain the ridges the slopes the hills the valleys etc cover obviously changes a lot. So right. available cover right now in February is a lot different than it'll be in September. Um, right. So deer behavior relating to cover will be different, but right. how they move along a ridge will be very similar. Might adjust a little bit if there's more leafy cover at some point. But right. yeah, that's a big thing to look for. And I really like having that snow just allows you to confirm things so much yes. better than any other time of year. If, if, if only to tell you what to think about in late November and December, that's still helpful. Um, right. but you can see, oh yeah, all these tracks do walk down the bottom third of the, you know, one third of the way down the ridge, or they do use a little spur, or you do see that there's a whole bunch of deer bedding on this point, just like you thought there would have been. And you, you, you always assumed there was, and now you can actually see it laid out in the snow. No questions asked. Yeah. Um, you know, I was out on the back 40 last week, took a little scouting run because I always I would like to get at least one snowy day scouting session on every farm just to see that stuff laid out there. Um, and I discovered a little knob that extended out into the swamp that I never walked through last year for some reason. And there was like 20 beds on it. There was all sorts of deer in there right now. And I'm not saying they're all going to be there in October, but it was still good to know that that was a major late season bedding year that I never would have thought about in the past. Um, another thing I did is I went and I was trying to pay attention to any buck tracks. And if I found a big set of buck tracks, I would backtrack it and follow the path that buck took. So, you know, there's no time of year you can do that when you can actually see exactly how a buck moves across the landscape. So yeah. this is really cool. I went and I was walking down along the edge of the swamp and I cut a big track. I thought this is definitely looks like a buck track, really wide, splayed, big dew claws. Um, so I start following this buck track and it takes me into the middle of the swamp, right into the middle of it. And then it starts heading due south, straight down the middle of the swamp, down towards the bottom of, I've, I've kind of described this swamp as, as like a gourd. So at the top, the north end is like the handle of the gourd, the narrow end, and then it widens out into a big 
glob at the bottom. And so it's taking me straight down into the glob of the bottom heading towards the neighbors where it opens up into like a very watery um, cattail area. And I'm following this buck track, and then all of a sudden, a bunch of other bucks all merge with this buck. So now there's a group of three or four what looks like bucks all in the same little area that I never got into last year because it's so gnarly in there. And, of course, that's where these bucks are going. And they head straight out to the edge of this really watery stuff. And then right then, as I'm looking, I'm like, oh, this is, of course, this is where these bucks are heading to go. There's these little points of just a little bit of high ground with a bunch of, I don't know if it's red osier dogwood or some autumn olive stuff, just really thick shrubby stuff that extends, little points extending out into the marshy stuff. And it's like picture perfect, obvious bedding, but it's in the nastiest, thickest, farthest away from anywhere you can get spot. And yeah. I'm sneaking out to them like, oh, yeah, of course, this is where those bucks are going. And I'm looking, I'm seeing there's one tree I actually hunt in here. If I ever want to get in there, like, you know, November 5th or something all day, sit in the swamp, this would be such a sweet spot. And I'm sitting here looking around, thinking about it. And then I hear slosh, slosh, slosh. And then out from this point, 20, 30 yards in front of me, a big bodied buck steps out into the open and just looks at me. He's already shed his antlers. So I can just see these big knobs on his head, but a big body and he just stands there and staring at me and I'm staring at him like, man, this is awesome. I followed this buck right to where he's bedded. He walks out right in front of me. Um, just a really cool little scouting encounter that confirms, you know, things I wondered about and, yeah. you know, gave me something to think about this coming season. So definitely you can, you can learn stuff during this time of year. Um, you know, you can't see scrapes because they're covered in snow, possibly. But if you don't have snow cover, you can see scrapes. You can see rutting activity from last year. That can be helpful if you can see rubs and stuff. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot. I, you know, I wouldn't put too much into exact trails and things like that. That could be different when cover is different. But there certainly is value to be had this time of year. Right. And But the, the whole the whole point, and we both agree on this, is that it's all about data collection and data points and and adding all these data points together. Let's say you scout in the in the uh, uh, winter and you see the terrain feature, you identify the terrain feature, you come back in in the summer, and now what you've seen is this thickness, right? All the vegetation is there, and maybe what you didn't see in the winter, you see in the summer, which is edge, right? Mm -hmm. Now what we're doing basically is we have a checkbox. Checkbox. Uh, okay, we got terrain, a good terrain feature. Check. Oh, now we got edge. Check. Hey, check this out. It's the this draw leads to a food source. Check. So now all we're doing is is checking this box to identify good locations to put a tree stand or a ground blind to ambush these animals. Yeah. Right. So the more checks you have in that in in the checkbox, the better the area I feel will be. Yeah. I think it's worth getting. I think it's helpful to do some form of scouting during each different season of the year. Just Absolutely. so you get that full suite of data across the board. Yeah. Get the winter, get the spring, get a little summer. And then, of course, when you're hunting, thinking about scouting every time you go out there. Um, and then you have that full set that you can pull from. Yeah, absolutely. Ah, uh, what about this? This question comes from Daniel. And then Garrett has kind of a related question. Basically, Daniel says, hey, I'm a new hunter. Um, no, sorry, this one, Daniel, he's starting a group trying to help educate some of his neighbors on how to hunt. And he's wondering about low-budget starter kits for a new hunter. 
excuse me, the hiccups. I get hiccups a lot when I'm on this podcast for some reason. I think it's because I'm always, I drink coffee and I think once I get towards the end of the coffee, I've swallowed so much air as I'm talking and drinking coffee that (laughs) I end up getting hiccups. But what I'm trying to say is the question is some kind of recommended cheap way to get started. Like what's the bare essentials that you need to start hunting? Um, I think I would tell you that, you know, just, and again, let's just say you've got the bare bones budget. I would just get some basic, decent clothing that can get you out in there with some basic camouflage, um, something that's going to keep you warm and keep you dry so you're not soaking wet. So try to get some half-decent base layers so you're not drenched. But you don't need to spend thousands of dollars on the best camo, which, you know, we like to have good stuff, but you don't have to have it right away. Um, I would tell you to not feel bad about getting one of those starter kit bows. I think that those are all pretty decent these days. That's what I started with. My first compound was one of those pre-setup compounds from Cabela's. I bet you it was like 300 bucks or 250 or something. It came with all the accessories and, you know, it's not top of the line, but it is plenty good enough to get out there shooting and to be able to get a deer. Um, I would say at a very high level, that's a good route to go from the bow. If you're going to go bow hunting, Um, gun hunting, I mean, there's a lot of very effective beginner range rifles or shotguns you don't need none of the fancy stuff is absolutely necessary right it's just if you want to get really really serious really really detailed with things um but to get started don't stress over that stuff don't be afraid to borrow that's a good point dude there is a lot i mean for a bow that might be hard to do because you have to have these same exact uh schematics as the guy who you're borrowing from but if you're a gun hunter you know i know a lot of people who would just be willing to give you a gun to let you borrow it for a season because they have plenty of guns that they, that they have access to. So even borrow stuff from friends and family. I think that's a, that's a really good point. And, and another option too, um, is a new hunter. And I know some people are just fundamentally opposed to them, but if you are interested in bow hunting, but you aren't yet fully comfortable with the compound, crossbows are very, very good for new hunters as far as you can pick it up and be very competent with it quickly. Um, Mm -hmm. Hate them or love them, they're a good thing for new hunters as far as I'm concerned. So that's something to keep in mind. Yep, absolutely. Um, So, okay, you need some kind of basic clothing. You need a basic entry-level weapon. Um, As far as other gear, I think that if someone was starting out, I wouldn't even try to get them confused or intimidated with some kind of elevated hunting gear Mm -hmm. i think that maybe just figure out how to hunt from the ground to start might be a a safe more comfortable route for someone new you know because i feel like that's one of the major intimidating factors for new people is the idea of climbing into a tree or for some people at least um so i might say hey get a ground blind or you know, get a little something, an idea of how to set up behind a tree trunk or something. Just get out there and learn to look for deer sign and learn to see deer and have some encounters um, before you go about trying to take that next step of how to set up a tree stand or how to climb up with sticks and a saddle or whatever. Um, that That's the thought I have on there. Um, and then what else? I mean, maybe binoculars, you know, some basic binoculars. Yeah, but I, even, even, yeah, even that your eyes are good enough to see that it's a deer. And if you're a new hunter, you really shouldn't be focusing on unless there's rules and regulations that prevent you from shooting one sex or the other. Uh, 
you should you shouldn't even be worrying about antlers. You yeah. should just shoot the first deer that comes by. Yeah. My opinion. Fill fill the freezer. Have that experience. Yep. Um, see what that's all like. So and a knife. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you need a you need a good field dressing knife. You need. Um, I mean, a grunt tube or something's nice, but not need to have um, some kind of backpack or fanny pack or something's a nice thing, I guess, if you want to bring a knife and your tag and, uh, you know, a few other little things like that. But you don't need a ton to get out there. Um, Boots to keep you dry, clothing to keep you comfy, an entry-level weapon, and just get out there and start. And that doesn't have to cost an arm and a leg. Um. I hate to see gear being something that keeps somebody from hunting, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. You don't need, you know, Mark and I sit here and we talk about stuff because we rely on our gear. So we're spending more money on it because we use it more and we're seasoned. You know, I don't want to sound arrogant, but that's just the, that's just, you know, we want to be in the tree stand as long as possible throughout the, or out West or whatever. So we're, we take into consideration our gear a lot more than a novice would. So if you're a novice, I mean, even, even solid color khakis and dickies, you don't even really need camo. Just be still. Yep. Yep. You can get away with a lot more than you think. Right. Um, so a couple of follow-up questions that a couple other people had questions related to mobile hunting gear. Um, Someone asked if we would prefer for our like running gun sets or for saddle hunting or something like that. Do you prefer steps or sticks? There are some mobile steps that you can like strap on steps. Um, mm. Other people like to put screw and pegs up and have a bunch of trees prepped with screw and pegs, but they don't put a stand or a saddle. So the stand or saddle is mobile, but they have steps in a whole bunch of places. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I'm pretty sure I know what it is, but what's yeah, your- man? I tell you what. Um, those guys at tethered are damn near peer pressuring me into, I, I don't know the first time that you ever drank alcohol. I was, I was hanging out with a whole bunch of like one of my best friends, older brothers and his friends are like, come on, Johnson, you got to do it, man. Take the sip of this beer. Come on, man. You got to do it. So I did it right. Peer pressure. Uh-huh. I feel like I'm getting, I'm getting peer pressured into sitting in a saddle. Well, dude, I've been, they must be more effective than me because I've been trying to get you to do it for two years and you haven't showed any sign of breaking. So now I, finally – Yeah, but it's you. I'd never listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm telling you. And I know they're telling you. And it, it's, it's funny. It's almost – it's probably annoying to hear all the people that are on – it's like it's definitely a bandwagon thing now. It's very trendy. Yeah. It's talked yeah. about a ton. It's quote-unquote kind of cool. It's a cool new thing. So it's got to be really annoying for people to keep hearing about it all the time. But I just – honest to God truth, for me at least, I'm not saying everyone's going to feel the same way, but for me it was like a – it was a total new world. I was like, wow, this is – I'm never going back after trying it. So I don't know. I'd be very interested to see what you think after you try. It's it, it, it is, I don't know. You are like a big bodied person, so maybe it won't be as comfortable for you as it is for me. I don't know, um, but you should try it. Yeah, I don't know. We'll give it a shot, I, I, dude. I just I, I've I'm really in my zone right now with my gear, and uh, like to the point where I feel like I'm really efficient. And you know, from a process standpoint, you should be open to other processes. Um, but I just, I'm in love with what I have and it, it treats me right. I, I understand if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. Um, 
Someone did ask, though, for a starter kit for saddle hunting. That was one of the questions. So I will tell you that the basics. Oh, we never answered that other question, too, which was sticks or steps. Yeah, um, I'm, you're I'm sticks. sticks, right? Sticks, yeah. And I'm sticks, too. And I will tell you that I I did, on a couple places, set up screwing pegs um, on the back 40 and my other farm where, in the past, I would have wanted to put up a new tree stand. But instead this year, I just, I did put screw and pegs up the tree with the notion that if I decide I want to hunt that, I'll just go on my saddle and set up then. And it was nice to have those preset like that um, because it does cut, you know, the five minutes of putting sticks up. But if I'm, you know, going into a new place and I don't have anything preset, um, I definitely prefer sticks over the strap on steps or anything. Yes. Now you're running lone wolf sticks, right? Yes. Have you made any modifications? Do you have, you've probably seen a lot of these different things people are doing. Have you thought about up, you know, customizing or changing or getting different sticks or trying anything different or, or where's your head at there? Yeah, not really. I mean, the only thing I really do is I take, um, hockey tape, black or green hockey tape, and I wrap the stick itself to deaden the noise and to make it more comfortable and holding when, you know, doing the running gun. But I don't know. I, all these people, it's great what they're doing, uh, you know, making sound dampening, making um, uh, aiders and all this stuff. I guess I'm, I don't hunt these black holes of public ground where you're walking in eight miles, right? I'm walking in at most, at most, I have one stand and it, it's all wind dependent that I, it will take me three quarters of a mile to walk into, right? I'm not walking miles and miles and miles to get back. So I'm not concerned about weight. Uh, the only thing I really do is wrap my, uh, sticks with the hockey tape and I take my time climbing up and down into the tree setting up. So noise for me is really not an issue. Um, you know, and unless I'm sitting right on top of a bed where I have to be ultra quiet because I know a buck is in there, dude, sound, it may seem loud to you, but you know, 80, you know, 50, 80 yards away, unless it's dead quiet and it's a high pressure day, you're not, that sound isn't going to travel very far. Again, all my, all my opinions. I'm going to push on you a little bit there. Okay. Because I do think that right? Deer do have much bigger, much more accurate ears than we do. So yeah. what we hear, it's hard to imagine what their experience might be. And, and it's likely much greater, more tuned than, than ours are. So I would just say that if I was going to recommend you do anything, if, if you were good, if I, if I had the luxury of telling you to make one change, Dan, I would tell you to consider at least getting rid of the buckles on your straps, yeah. on your sticks. Because those things just seem to be, you make one little miscue with your hand, and if one strap goes sliding down or swinging down and smacks against another thing, even if you've got it hockey-sticked, it's going to make some noise. And then especially if you ding against the step or any kind of metal-on-metal contact, that stuff is just, I don't know. I always worry about that. So one thing I did that's a very simple thing um, is I got, and you can do a DIY uh, work around this, but there's something that's from Tether too. It's called the Versa strap. You seen these? It's yep. just basically a daisy chain. So it's it's like a strap with a bunch of loops in it. 
And so you just take off the regular strap of the buckle from your sticks and you put this on. You put one loop over the Versa button and then you've got another loop that you wrap it on the tree and then you just loop it over. You just pick the right hole that gets the tightness you need. So now I've got a strap with no buckles, with nothing that can make noise, and um, just it, it makes it much easier and quieter for me to set up. So that's one little update I made to my sticks that I like. But yeah, but yeah either way, I like sticks too. I'm thinking about buying new sticks this year. Um, still undecided on which brand I'm going to go with. But um, So you want to know why I don't really like think sound is as big of an issue unless a deer may already be spooked is I was – it was – late October one year and I'm sitting here perfect night, you know, those late October, uh, evenings where you just feel like you're in the right position. You, you know, there's gotta be a mature buck in here somewhere, whatever. And out of the, you know, I'm glassing this, uh, there's still a, a standing cornfield on the opposite side of this, uh, little, not really a marsh, but a wet spot in between a timber and an ag field. So I was hunting this CRP field with a wet spot in it and I see some movement and there he is. It's one of my target bucks and he's probably, he's in this tree line, uh, strip of trees and then probably 50 yards was a, um, uh, was the cornfield. And then all of a sudden I see, or I hear the combine start up and it starts to combine that field. And that, combine goes 50 yards away from this buck and his body language does not even change. He's just sitting there eating his cud and two, three, four laps around the field. And that buck is just standing there. So I feel like if a, if a buck isn't going to move with a combine 50 yards away from him, then my, my small little clank on a on my tree stand isn't going to affect them either i don't know see i feel like that's all context though in that oh i agree that deer knows that that combine is you know that's a sound that they're used to but the sound of like a single little ding 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 that's like oh that's that's a weird thing out of place in here um i think you can get away i think you could do you could probably get away with better access to your tree stand by taking a chainsaw you should, here's my new access idea. <laughs> when you're going in to hunt your stands, if you've got a hard to get to place, go in there with a chainsaw idling. Walk all the way to your tree stand with an idling chainsaw and then get set up. That's the kind of thing where I feel like you can get away with like farm work and that kind yeah. of stuff. It's like the sneaky, quiet sounds. The, the ones that deer are like, ah, that's, that's not supposed to be here. Right. Um, I don't know. But for, every, for everything I've said and believe in, I can contradict myself with another thing that I've seen from the tree stand as well. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. So oh, yeah. whatever. Yeah. That's, that's what keeps us going, right? Is we don't have it all right. figured out. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via 
convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Um, okay, so yeah, sticks. Sticks are the way to go for mobile hunting, I think. Um, to Garrett's question about the starter kit for saddle hunting, um, I would say get sticks. I would say... Um, Again, if you're trying to be as like as budget tight as possible, get the saddle of whatever choice, whatever brand you like. I like the tether one. Um, the platform is really, really nice. I love having one, but if you have to skimp somewhere, you could pro- probably get away with just a couple screw and pegs. If you don't want to spend a couple hundred bucks on a platform, excuse me, just throw in a couple pegs and that works. I've done that. It's fine. Um, so that saves you some money. You need a lineman's belt and you need a tether. Um, but that's it. That's all you absolutely have to have. You can get all these different recliner straps. You can get little baggies to hold things. You can get, um, you know, the fancy insulators and stuff. It's nice to have, but you don't have to have it. So get a tether, get a lineman's belt, get some sticks, get some pegs, and you can be up in the tree and going without spending a bunch of money on 15 different tree stands and stuff. So, that is the starter kit for saddle hunting. Um, what else? If you had to pick one week to shed hunt, Dan, what would your best week of shed hunting be? Man, this is such a – how do I put this? It's a only me question, right? It's like, so what's your favorite thing to do, right? So my favorite is different than everybody else's. But, dude, I have found that the late last week in February – probably the last week in February or the first week in March are in my ex in my experiences, the, where I find found the most sheds consistently. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd say somewhere right in that same ballpark. I would probably pick the, I don't know. I'm torn between those two as well, because I would, I used to think the first week in March all the time, but there's so many more people out there shed hunting these days. I hate getting chewed up antlers. Um, 
So yeah, late February, early March, it's hard to go wrong with those dates. And you certainly can find them sooner and you can certainly find them later. There's no doubt about that too. There's obviously variability. I found trans two sheds January 23rd match set. So you just never know. What was the earliest you've ever found a shed antler? Hmm. Um, that might be it. That actually might be my earliest sheds. I'm trying. No, let me take that back. There's one time, and I didn't actually find it, but a guy, a neighbor, was tracking a buck through the farm I can hunt, and I was out there helping him track it, and he found a shed in late December. So from from that year, from that year, yep, it was a freshie, okay. just just dropped in late December. So I didn't technically find it, but that's the earliest one I've been around. Yeah. So I would say late December. I found one January or excuse me, December 28th. So it was, it was a real fresh one too. And then the next one, the next earliest was January 7th. Yeah. So they're definitely out there. Yep. Um, Derek asked us if we've ever heard of gut pile farts. (laughs) Dan, have you heard of gut pile farts? I mean, I've heard of them, but I don't think I've ever had them. So, (laughs) I'll try to explain this. Um, So isn't the deal that after you gut a deer, supposedly your farts will smell like a gut pile? Yeah. So if you breathe in the smell of a gut pile, somehow that makes it through your entire system that when you fart, it smells like a gut pile of a deer. (laughs) So you don't think there's any truth to that? Come on. <laughs> it sounds perfectly reasonable to me. Right, right. I mean, I don't know how long it takes some people to gut a deer, but it takes me maybe, let's just say at most, to get in there, get everything ripped out, I would say 10 minutes, right? I mean, really it doesn't take, you know, I don't know, unless something else is is happening there. About 10 minutes it takes to gut a deer. How, like... Just imagine how much gut pile odor you would have to breathe in your system in order for you to then fart it out your back. <laughs> like, that's a lot of gut pile odor. But there are supposedly like tons of people that talk about this and believe in it. Have you ever farted before? Yes. Um, <laughs> really? Just, <laughs> But, my but son, my son is just discovering farts now, and it's pretty funny to see his like his eyes like when we we toots. He's like, "Ooh, toot!" And he, his head, his eyes get really big. It's pretty funny. Anyways, continue. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but like, uh, uh, have you ever farted and it smelled exactly like a beef burger, and it was smelled delicious? No. Yes, you have. Come no, on, I've you had never you once never had, had a, a beef burger fart. I, no, never had a like, delicious smelling fart. It's like, oh, damn. Now I'm hungry for beef burgers. <laughs> no. You've never, never had a beef burger fart. Never. I want to make two points. Number one, I've never found a fart to be appetizing. The fact that you have is seriously concerning. Number two, you do know that you're now the board director of a serious conservation organization, and you are now talking about farts on they the podcast. Knew what they, were <laughs> they knew what they were getting when they hired me. They knew it. Oh, yeah. Just credibility going down the pipe so fast. <laughs> hey, this is launching on your podcast, That's not true. mine. That's true. <laughs> um, so, so our buddy Spencer, 
actually wrote an article about this over on the Mediator website, and he talked to some different scientists about it. And supposedly the the experts on the topic uh, is that, number one, this is absolutely an old wives' tale. This is not actually something that happens. Your farts will not smell like gut piles in any kind of objective way. Um, but they did talk about the fact that there are um, serious, like, m- smell and memories are strongly tied together so there might be like some funky psychological thing going on if uh if those farts bring back the memory of the cup <laughs> if you're eating something maybe that's tied to or if you have some kind of cue it might bring that memory back up um yeah. but but no it seems like that's one of those crazy rumors that doesn't have any science to back it up yeah well there you go <laughs> there you go <laughs> um Kyle is a Michigan hunter. He's been hunting for five years. He's killed three does so far, but now he's really trying to get his first buck. What's the best piece of advice to take that step from having killed does to now wanting to finally get a buck? Man, I I honestly think it's just a, I mean, first off, if you ask me, three does in five years is really good for a a beginner hunter. Yeah. What do you think? Is that a good? I'd agree. Yeah, it's a great start. Um, so what I would say is, you know, don't go out looking, if you want to kill a, a, a buck, kill a buck, but don't go out looking for some kind of unrealistic, unattainable goal. If you just be patient in the same tree stands that you're sitting in and just pass up, pass up those does, I feel like young bucks will be right behind them at some point. I think that's a pretty good point. I think you're pretty much absolutely right. That is true. The one thing I'd add to that, I would just piggyback on that, would be that you do need to take things. I, w- I would just say if you want to, on average, have a better chance with a buck, you have to kind of take your attention to detail up a couple notches. Simply from the fact that they're just in almost everywhere, there are more does than bucks. There's yeah. going to be a ratio of, of a larger number of females to males just based on hunting implications in most states. So there's just going to be fewer targets out there. And so because of that, you have to get past more deer. You have to avoid more mistakes in order for that rare deer to come by. And like you just said, Dan, step number one is starting to pass on those does. Yeah. So, But once you start passing does, once you have a doe or two walking close to you and then walking past you, you open yourself up for more possible mistakes. So is your scent control good enough? Did you, are you being quiet enough? Did you set up in a way that your wind isn't going to blow where those deer are? All those little things that maybe didn't matter when you were just trying to kill the first deer that walked by, they matter now. Um, so I would just start, you know, it just a little bit more ramping it up. If you were thinking about, okay, maybe the way you learn to kill your first deer was find a place where there's a lot of deer tracks, find a food source where there's a bunch of deer tracks and sit close to that. And that's not a bad way. If you're just trying to simply get around some deer and shoot some does that might be able to get you a couple does. Now the next step might be thinking about your wind direction. So thinking about, okay, where's my wind blowing so that as I'm sitting here, there's not going to be deer smelling me as they come towards me, but also so that the deer that get past me won't win me too. Maybe that's another thing that'll help. Um, so all the little bits and pieces start to matter a little bit more once you're looking for a buck, even a year and a half old buck, though, just because of that rarity, um, becomes a little bit more of a question. Yeah. And also then, I mean, depending on where you're at too, 
like a year and a half old buck in Michigan is a lot harder to see than a year and a half old buck in Montana or probably Iowa or someone. Um, so that challenge level is going to be different as well. Um, but you know, one other thing I'll just mention if you're starting to hunt bucks other than does, um, during most parts of the year, the same basic strategy works. Um, early season, late season, you know, it's a betting defeating type of movement, but the one time it's different is during the rut. So if you're focused on bucks during the rut, the biggest difference, and, and this is one-on-one stuff that everyone, most everyone listening knows already, but I'll just say it for new folks that during the rut. So that's for most parts of the country, that's in November, late October. That's when the bucks are trying to breed does. So at that point, your bucks are more often going to be trying to travel in between doe bedding areas. So finding those thick places that does are bedding and learning how bucks move between the two, that's a spot, like a funnel or pinch point, you'll hear us call it. That's a place to look. Or getting downwind of doe bedding areas or doe feeding areas, which is where these bucks will cruise to try to smell the does. So that's one other small tactical difference that can help you be in a better position for a buck versus a doe. Yeah. Yep. Agree. Uh, Doc asked... Badass name, by the way. Yes. Uh, He said he's moving to Iowa. How do you go about shrinking the learning curve when hunting a new state? You've hunted more states than me. It's true. Um, I would tell you, do your e-scouting. So before we go to a new place, whether that's for a one-week trip or if you're going to spend a bunch of time hunting, I mean, definitely study the maps, learn the maps. Um, In most, I mean, I've hunted, I don't know, 15 different states for whitetail, something like that. They're basically the same animal everywhere. They've got their little differences here and there. Definitely the level of um, concern that they demonstrate for hunters or for mistakes and stuff is different. So from one state to another, from a heavily pressured state to a lesser pressured state, you can get away with more or less. Um, but basically, like they do the things we just talked about. They go from bedding areas to feeding areas. They cruise during the rut. Um, they want cover. They will walk through, you know, the path of least resistance when they're trying to move from point A to point B, as long as they feel safe. Those basic things are the same no matter what, but look at your maps first before you get there, pick out the best places based off of your knowledge of terrain and cover on the maps. So pick out the places that look like pinch points, pick out the places that look like bedding areas, pick out the places that look like food, food sources. Um, and then as soon as you get there, if you're moving there, it's different. You've got a whole bunch of time. Um, but once you get there on the ground, then at least you've shortened your learning curve a little bit because now you just go focus on those top spots first, scout those high probability areas first, especially if you're on a week trip or something and you've got very minimal time, you know, hit those things and ground truth them. Um, that's a way to be a little bit more efficient. Um, but I would secondly just say, spend as much time watching as you possibly can. So if you're moving there, Get out there and watch places in the summer. Just watch them, see them, observe. I don't think anything can help you better than just simply observing an area. And then once you're in hunting season two, do the same thing. Use observation stands for a while once you're getting started. Don't feel like you have to strike right away. Step back and watch and then push closer and closer as you learn more. I think that is a, it's not like revolutionary advice at all. But I think that is kind of how I've approached most of my new states is I first e-scout, then I ground truth, and then I observe and adjust, observe and adjust. And that's kind of what I've done every different state. And you just figure it out as you go. Yep. So he's moving to Iowa, right? Yeah. Yep. So I think moving 
to a state and learning how to hunt it and visiting it for a five day window or however long your trip is, are, there's going to be some of the same things, but at least now when you move to a new state, you're able to, if you do make a mistake, you have more time to recover from it as opposed to a five day window. Let's say you make a mistake, you're, you could be screwed. Yeah. Right. Um, and especially Iowa or any States get to know people in the surrounding area, find a, a, a local group of hunters and, and chit chat with them, become friends with them, uh, talk to them, ask them, you know, uh, you know, Hey, where's good public or, and, and that's going to be hard to find in a state like Iowa, but, and when people find it, they're pretty closed lips about it, but knock on doors, talk to people. If you're moving to a new state, you got to know the area and the people who live in that area. And that is your in to, uh, a farm, whether it's in Iowa or whether it's in a different state, if you want to hunt on a piece of property, uh, you got to know the landowner, knock on their door, start a relationship with them. And they may tell you no the first year or two, but then who knows, year three, four, five might be your opportunity to prove yourself. Yeah. I like your idea about just getting to know people. That's yeah. that's such a, it's a non-technical thing, but it probably makes as much of a difference as any because you you get some buddies or you meet some people through a conservation organization or something and they can very quickly start telling you about the local unique things. They might be able to point you to some areas to check out, some public land to check out or some people you should knock on their doors or, you know, hey, we got a lot of ridges around here. These bucks always cruise this thing or they always check out this kind of spot. You know, that kind of local intel is is invaluable to help you get jump started. Um, and I would tell you, if you're moving to Iowa, a guy you should seek out he is, uh, <laughs> he looks a little bit like a character from the Rudolph films, you know, um, yep. claymation, Yukon Cornelius. You know, it's funny, yep. Dan, I haven't mentioned this to you yet, but my son is really, really big into the Rudolph movie. Like he's obsessed with Rudolph. So That's we got great. him these little figurines from the movie. And so he has a little Dan Johnson figurine that he has <laughs> carrying around with him every once in a while, <laughs> which is kind of weird. <laughs> Um, but yeah, seek out Dan Johnson for some local Intel. You'll put him in the good spots, right, Dan? Oh yeah. The best, <laughs> uh, Brooke asks, and this is an interesting one. I've kind of wondered about this at first. I was like, nah, then I kind of wonder, do you think that e-bikes are worth the investment? Do you see any value with the whole e-bike thing, Dan? Oh, I would love to have an e-bike. Yeah. I, th I think it would be awesome. Um, however, Explain. Uh, well, just access, I mean, especially through driving through a farm, I would love to unload my truck, um, or unload it at, you know, at the entrance of the farm and not have to drive my truck, you know, all the way back through the farm. This e-bike is quiet. It's, uh, I, I don't think it would be very threatening. I think the deer would look at it more of a, Hey, what is that? Than opposed to running away from it. Yeah. Uh, and then at the same time, uh, like I said, it's, it would just be awesome to, to have one of those things they're, they're fun, not cheap. And from a public land standpoint, there are a lot of public, uh, places throughout the United States that don't allow any motorized vehicles and an e-bike is considered a motorized vehicle Yeah, in most States. Yeah, man, they're, um, I feel like you look kind of dorky rolling around on an e-bike, um, 
for some reason, if, or maybe if I just, you care what people think about you. Right. Or, or maybe it's like, maybe I just feel like guilty about the idea of not pedaling. Maybe that's my issue with it. I just feel well, like you can, you can set it up to one of these settings to where you, in order for the motor to go, you actually have to pedal. Yeah. So that Is might it? get me past my psychological underpinning of my <laughs> issue, <laughs> but I do agree with what you're saying. And, and the reason why they are intriguing is that I do think that it is a safer way to access spots. Like they're yeah. not, deer aren't going to be as bothered. You're not leaving a bunch of boot prints. It's a different sound than boot steps. You know, that is a very human sound. A rolling bike is not going to be the same kind of sound. So I think you can probably get away with a lot more, whether you're accessing a spot or checking trail cameras or something. So I'm I'm definitely intrigued for that reason. Um, but you're right. They are expensive. Um, so I don't know. I've yet to try one, but there are they are interesting. So my buddy, Adam Parr, you know him. Uh-huh. He works for Quiet Cat. And well, how come you don't have one then, man? Yeah, right. Hey, abracadabra. Like, hey, dude, just give me, hey, give me a, give me an e-bike, give me three thousand dollars. Make sure he listens. Make sure he listens to this podcast, and he'll hear how intrigued we are, yet yet reticent to to really try one and (laughs) see what happens. Gonna send him just. You know, that's how, that's how influential we are, Mark. They're just going <laughs> to send us whatever we ask for. Come on, man. You got a Russian hacker to give you back your social media <laughs> credentials. <laughs> can't you, can't you weasel quiet cat? <laughs> right. But it, you look at it, it's expensive, right? But at the same time, it, it'll, it should last you a long time. Yeah. I mean, you'd hope so. Yeah. It's intriguing. Yeah. It's intriguing. If I could afford one, I'd probably have one. Ah, okay. Um, Taylor asks to improve, and this is more of a question for me than you, Dan, but maybe you've heard from someone who gave you some ideas on this. Taylor asks to improve deer hunting. Is it more important to plant food plots or improve bedding areas? So it's a habitat management question. Are food plots or bedding areas more important? And my answer is pretty simple. It depends. And it just simply depends on what is available in your area. So there's no one size fits all. That's always going to be the most important thing. You have to look at what's available on your property and what's available in the surrounding properties and then figure out where the area of most need is. So what's missing? So if you're in an area that's a bunch of big timber and there's tons of trees and tons of cover, but there's no good food, then, hey, if you put some good food in, all of a sudden you're offering that rare commodity that deer want and they'll, that'll be very valuable. On the flip side, if you're in an area with tons of ag around you and tons of food or Everyone around you has got tons of food plots, but it's wide open. There's no good cover. If you all of a sudden put in a ton of good cover, you have the rare commodity, the thing that deer need, they're going to come to be with you. So just look at the surrounding area, provide what's not there, provide something unique, fill that most, those common denominator, the lowest common denominator. And, um, that will be the first place to start at least. Uh, how can you tell the difference between buck beds and doe beds or buck bedding areas and doe bedding areas? Dan, you got any thoughts on that? Man, you know, so I think I'll be honest. I think there's a misconception with this whole bedding or hunting a specific bed, uh, ideology, right? So we know Dan in and we know that this guy is a master of locating a, a specific bed through scouting and accessing it and hunting it and killing deer coming back to it, right? Would you agree that that is that that's that principle? Yep, definitely. Like a, yes, him and his disciples have gotten very good at that. Yes, for me, I understand the principles, but where I hunt, 
I don't feel like the deer bed in the same bed every single time. So for me, it's hard every single day, right? They're not going back to a specific uh, bed every single day. I think it's a lot more wind dependent uh, where, where I hunt based off of the wind uh, and how the wind uses, you know, how the uh, terrain affects the wind. So they have a, a little bit different bedding area every single day uh, or every single wind direction. But knowing whether something is a bed, a buck bed or a doe bed can be very difficult. Uh, if, especially if let's say a doe is using uh, the same bed multiple times, it could just get worked to a point where it's bigger or a buck bed, you know, you may be able to tell through, uh, for the tracks that are in it, or maybe it's around a whole bunch of rubs. It could be, but I don't feel that there is a 100% you know, there's no, I don't know. There's not, there's not any fact that you can look at a bed and go, I guarantee you that is a buck bed. I know it. Unless you saw a buck stand up out of it, that's a buck bed. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. Um, what I would add to it though, is that I do think there are things that can give you confidence to say, this is likely a buck bed versus a doe bed. I think there are things that can clue you into it probably is, um, and I'll add one more thing before I mention that. Though. I'd say, as I understand, you know, what folks like Dan are doing, what I'm in mean, Andy May or different folks like that, and that I use sometimes, is that you're not necessarily, they're not necessarily saying that a buck's betting in the same place every single time, but they're saying that he's going to have a handful of places that are the most commonly used. So let's right. call him Buck the Big Eight. He might have like five locations based on wind direction and time of year that these general regions are where he's typically rotating throughout. And if you happen to know where those are, then you can cycle through them based off of Intel and have a chance at least. I think that's usually what they're doing. Um, but as far as figuring out what those things are, what I look for to tell the difference is oftentimes, almost always, does are bedded in family groups. So you've got a doe and her fawns, and then usually that fawn, that doe's two-year-ago fawns. So there's going to be groups, family groups of you know, three to six to nine does, big groups of deer usually. So you're never, almost never, I don't want to say never, but most often you won't see a big group of deer beds that is bucks. Usually that's going to mean, okay, these are a bunch of does, these are does and fawns. So if I find a bed and then there's another one right next to it and two more over here and three more over there, then I can say pretty confidently, okay, this is a doe bedding group. On the flip side, if I see an individual, like one single bed by itself, it's if there's one single big bed and you look around it and there's no others and you walk a 10-yard circle around it and a 20-yard circle around it and a 30-yard circle around it, there's still no other beds, just this one big bed, that's a pretty strong indication that's a buck bed. Um, if you find a bunch of rubs right around it, that's another indicator it's probably a buck bed. Um, if that bed is in like the best possible location, that's another thing. Oftentimes the bucks will get dibs on those just picture-perfect bedding spots. So like a little knob off of a ridge with some cover on it, you know, two-thirds of the way up the ridge, that kind of spot that's like, oh, yeah, this is money. This buck can sit here and see everything ahead of him and he can smell what's behind him. That's the kind of spot that, okay, yes, this makes sense for a buck to be here. Or if there's a little point that extends into a swamp or an island in a swamp and there's some high ground there and there's one bed on it, that can be like, okay, yes, that's probably a buck. Those are the things that kind of clue me in on 
probably a buck versus probably doe. Again, no sure things, but um, those are clues at least to give you some something to work with, you know? Um, you got to go, Dan, though, right? Here pretty soon. Okay. So let's wrap it up then. Any, we got a bunch more questions that we'll, we'll just keep on doing these. I feel like once a month almost, we need to do these Q&A podcasts because people yeah. have got a lot of questions. And I um, think it, it's the best way to cover a lot of different things. It was fun. At least yeah, for me, fine. I enjoy going yeah. through these. I'll really oh, yeah. quickly answer one question here. Got a question. Someone said, what can people do to take action to protect the Boundary Waters? If you heard me last year talking about my Boundary Waters trip, um, you know about what's going on there. I will just tell you that recently a bill was proposed that will protect the area around the Boundary Waters from the mines that they're trying to put in there. It's called the Boundary Waters Wilderness Protection and Pollution Prevention Act. That's a lot. So don't remember that. Just remember to Google Boundary Waters and you will see this new bill. It's called HR5598. Maybe that's easy to remember. HR5598. Email your representatives. Tell them to support that. That will protect the Boundary Waters. So that's all I got, Dan. Any final thoughts from you? No, sir. It's uh, a pleasure as always talking to you, Mark Kenyon. It was fun. I enjoyed it, my friend. Let's do it again soon. And that is going to do it. So thank you all for listening. Hope you enjoyed this one. Um, If you haven't yet left a review for the Wired Hunt podcast, that's a pretty cool thing. That definitely helps out what we're doing here. I'd appreciate that. If you haven't left a review for my book, That Wild Country on Amazon, that's a really cool thing. That helps a ton. And for both of these things, I will thank you in advance. Um, I hope you've been enjoying this free podcast over the years and your support with reviews, your support in purchasing the book. All of that is incredibly um, helpful, incredibly appreciated. So thank you. Stick around. We got a lot more fun stuff to come. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.